You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the Drive Time Show. May peace be upon you, and thank you very much for tuning in and joining us for the next two hours. We've got some fantastic subjects that are hot off the press, and actually, we all recognise them very much so, because they just affect us on a daily life. So... Just before we get into those topics, my name is Hanif Khan, and I'm here in the studio with Daniel. Assalamu alaikum, brother. Wa alaikum assalam, rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you and all the listeners out there. Yeah, um, and I'm sure everyone is listening in and tuning in and wanting to know what subjects we're talking about today. If you haven't already tuned in, actually on our website where everything is already there and it has already been tweeted out on our social media platforms as well. So. The first topic that we want to talk about is money. How important is money? Why are we even talking about money? What's the importance of it? Why do we need to even discuss it? So that we're going to delve into that. And we'll be talking to a guest who actually understands the concept of how important it is to save your money for later in life because she's a, a carer for support. So many people save their money, don't they, Danielle, for later in life. So... Actually, they need the care, don't they? Because we have a system that's kind of broken in the in the social adult care system. So how that kind of affects people? Yes, absolutely. But not only that. I think this is a, uh, this is a wider discussion, and it's uh, money is uh, has has wider implications in our, our lives, throughout our lives. So we'll yeah. be talking about that as well about yeah. how important it is not to get into debt. How how do you spend money wisely? Mm-hmm. How do you stay frugal throughout your life so that you um, you're never ever in and never in a, in a compromising situation. I like that word. Most people do refer to themselves, so I live frugally or yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a frugal. So, yeah, we'll delve into that and you can explain that a lot more, how it is. I may not necessarily 100% live like that, which I know I should. So in the second hour, we will be talking about extremism. What drives radicalization? And that is something that is such a worrying thing for so many people today, not knowing What's happening? Who's talking to my children? What are they viewing online? Who are they speaking to? Where are they going? Who are their friends? And all of this topic we'll be talking and we'll be talking to some very high profile guests who understand this. We're talking to Steve Hewitt. He's a member of the history department at University of Birmingham who understands all about this terrorism and researches it. And then we'll be talking to Christian Cornot as well. But if any of that really does affect you in a way, it'd be nice to just engage with us. We're asking a question on our Instagram. What drives people to becoming radicalized? I mean, is it loneliness and isolation? Um, is it the lack of opportunities? Is it being mild? marginalized and discriminated against or is it a conflict of war and some results have actually come in which are quite interesting and surprising for me as well but i'll let danielle explain those results later on in the show because they are quite interesting so why don't we just get into the first subject and talk about the subject we're talking about today and actually in terms of an introduction there is um, a narration danielle isn't it that um that aisha may allah be pleased with her said that the holy prophet muhammad may peace and blessings of allah upon him he used to say this prayer didn't he Yes, absolutely, and uh, a very important prayer, and um, something which uh, which obviously has deep meaning and deep re- repercussions as well in our lives. So it's uh, it's narrated from Hazrat Aisha, who yep. is one of the wives of the Holy Prophet of Islam. May Allah be pleased with her, that the Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, used to say this prayer very regularly, as you said. And the prayer is, O Allah, 
I seek refuge with you from sin and heavy debt. Yeah, I mean, that is a really big thing. A lot of people today, as you know, we've talked about this subject so many times. We have the worst in living memory of the rise in cost of living and energy prices that any of us have ever experienced. Anybody that I grew up with, anybody I know who knows someone in the following generations, mm. this is the worst it's ever been. People talk about the 1970s, talk about the yeah. 1990s in this country, um, but they they haven't experienced it so bad this time round in the 21st century. So how do we deal with that? And I think this verse that you mentioned, I seek refuge from, uh, from you, from the sin and, and from heavy debt, because we know that when you're desperate and you got a lot of yeah. debt, mm-hmm. you tend to go and do things that you mm-hmm. wouldn't do. Yeah. Wouldn't do anyway, right? Yeah, you think, right. right? Okay, like I, maybe I should do this. Should do that. Because also, we're seeing today, um, as as the living costs have gone so crazily for people, the crime rate that we're seeing mm. in terms of shoplifting mm. has rocketed. Yeah. Through the roof, and you get when I speak to shopkeepers on a regular basis, like I do, just mm. in the retail outlets, and just saying, look, you know, what's the current situation? How are you feeling? They say, look, we've seen it before. We always kind of allow for a for some mm. for, for mm. something to be stolen, and yeah. but what they're seeing now is that we're seeing people come in again and again. We're seeing elderly people. We're seeing every mm. bit, type of diverse person coming in and stealing. So the way we survive is that we take out expensive items. They're not in display. They're at the back. Mm. They're like hidden away. And there's so much that we're seeing today. And we were looking at some of these statistics, weren't we, earlier uh, before the show, weren't we? But I I would also like to sort of maybe paint a bit of a picture, a bit of a background. um, Yeah, uh, Something that um, I think is, is, is very close to my heart. And we've done shows on on this as well so i remember doing a show on again on cost of living and there was uh, a, a, there was a discussion around pupils in some of the areas in london hmm. not in timbuktu some areas in london pupils going to school uh without without brushing their teeth because they cannot afford toothpaste hmm. So and that's this another. Is, this is this is London we're talking yeah, about. This is another thing that, and I don't want to get too um, alarming with many people, but actually, the dentists that are on the NHS, there's far fewer of them. They're under so much pressure. Yeah, there is no funding for them to be able to uh, treat children. The things that they are seeing with children at the age of three, four, five, with cavities in their milk teeth, in their teeth. Because the main reason is, is because there's no education in one, the uh, sweets that they eat, but actually how to brush your teeth. Yeah, exactly, dental hygiene. But I I guess the point that I'm trying to make is also around, you know, there there is actually um, not only lack of knowledge, there is probably lack of money as well in in a lot of areas in this country also. So, I mean, this was just one example yeah. of uh, a very small example of, so we've done a whole show on that and, yeah. uh, and, and and you can go into SoundCloud and listen to that. So, you know, that was just to paint a picture of how bad things really are, unfortunately, yeah. um, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got food banks in NHS trusts yeah. that are there for the nurses <clears throat> that actually cannot 
uh, buy food because they're the insufficient money that they earn. Yeah. And now we're finding some of the food banks are having to close down because there's not enough food being distributed because people mm. are in such a bad situation they're not able to actually contribute to a lot of the food banks. So we we know how bad it is and we we know that in October 2022 the inflation rate was 11.1% mm. which was the highest in almost 41 years. So that just tells you how incredibly difficult it is for people although not everyone has a mortgage to deal with but actually people still rent but those rented properties are owned by people who are going to suffer with the same interest rate suffering from their own properties right mm. so it, it's it's a big problem i was um listening to um an, another um talk show and someone came on and said look i'm married i've got three kids my wife works i work we're very comfortable no problem but i'm having to move back in with my parents mm. I said why because I can't afford the hike rate on my rent. Yeah. So what am I supposed to do? I'm comfortable. I've not had any issues. Mm. I've been fine for like 10 years, no problem, raised, raised the kids. But the rent of the prices, much of it is probably boiled down to the interest rates, mm. but mm. people are just hiking up um, the cost or the money that they're paying for for stuff. Yeah, because cost, as you said, inflation is high and the cost of living in general has gone up. The cost of energy has gone up. The, uh, the cost of groceries have gone up. The, the cost um, of pretty much all the, uti- yeah. all the essentials of life um, have uh, has actually gone up. Let's now speak to somebody who actually works in the care sector. Parveen Khan has joined us, who uh, is part of the Carers Support UK. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you a very warm welcome to the drive time show Walaikum salam how is everybody everybody's great thank you very much thank you for joining us um, um what let's because you work in the career sector so let's let's maybe focus on the on that sector what do you think are the struggles that um carers have to deal with um, in terms of financial issues um, within yeah. that sector so, at the moment yeah, so I work for Carers Support West Sussex and I work as a bilingual memory navigator. So my role is actually supporting South Asian families who've got somebody with dementia in their family. Mm. Uh, but I, overall, we support unpaid carers. Um, I think like you were just discussing a minute ago, finances and financial issues at the moment are the main issue for carers. And I think for generally as well, for general people, the cost of living, petrol, heating, all this sort of um, elements of what is happening in the UK at the moment is really, uh, you know, impacting on the carers and their caring role. And, you know, the carers are just amazing, are amazing. And they're so kind, caring. They're so um, within the community, support the community and support through looking after they cared for. But they are feeling it. It's really impacting on them, impacting mental health, uh, well-being. So I think the carers are definitely finding it hard. And, you know, carers don't get enough credit anyway, generally. There's a lot of, uh, you know, misconceptions about what a carer is, but also um, it's just so hard at the moment. So you said unpaid carers is, is what you support. So uh, tell us, how does that work? How do you support them? 
Yeah, so it's people within, like for example, if I have an elderly mother and I'm the I'm the daughter and I'm the carer for my mother, I don't get paid for it, but obviously through love and through commitment mm. and through my responsibilities. Right. Um, so that that is that, and you know, unpaid carers not really in society appreciated, um, and I think that's such a sad fact because you know they always think it's their responsibility, and you know their journey of being a carer is is really tough. Um, so it, it, it's kind, it, I mean, sometimes. For for example, I mean, I know carers that have left their work and their careers to come and look after their parents or their loved ones. And that impact on them is just horrendous because they run out of money. There's no, you know, time for themselves. They're caring for somebody else. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really tough. And I think, um, yeah, we need to wake up to, to their journeys and say, okay, how can we support you? And at Carers Support West Sussex, we do have support. We have, for example, a benefits advisor. Sometimes we have counselling that we can help them with. Um, and just sometimes a chat. I mean, a lot of the carers that I speak to do feel a bit isolated in their roles. So even me giving, like, just having a talk for half an hour and for them to offload their sort of feelings makes a big difference. But I think carers, and especially unpaid carers, do feel isolated in yeah. society sometimes. So, Praveen, just take a short breath there. I've got a question. What about carers' allowance? Don't people get carers' allowance? Yeah, but a lot of people don't know where to get these right, things. Right, you're going to tell us where, where they get, get it from then? information yeah, yeah there's different i mean you can go into different i mean there's carers uk as you mentioned there's dot yeah. uh, gov dot uk you can get information from there and there's lots of resources but it's time and having resources in one place to get the information yeah. can be quite hard i mean you've got to do a lot of research and that takes time and effort and um, a lot of information is on the uh, www.gov.uk yeah. um, there's other different citizens advice bureau um, local council websites you know they have information as well yeah so, so that's one um, of the issues isn't it you're right there when people yeah. are so busy looking after their parents mm. they don't realize that they can get it's not much but they can get a carer's allowance and if you've got a, a group of brothers and sisters looking after their elderly parents or somebody else one person can be nominated to receive that money but it's not people don't even know that it even exists and that's the other worrying thing. There's all this money available for people to take care. And I, and I totally appreciate that people do take, take their jobs because they love their parents. They want to give back whatever they can, especially it's very much a cultural thing. But definitely there is money out there, but it's not much. But it's good that you raise it with it? When you say it's not much, Parveen, would you have an idea as to what's an average... It, it, can, it depends because sometimes you have carers' assessments that are done and from that you can lead on to what sort of funding is available for you or what sort of, um, um, you know, you can tap into. It's, it, it can be complicated, but, you know, it's the thing is when you're caring for somebody, not having these resources available, not knowing about them, yeah. and I think that as a society or maybe as councils or maybe as governments, we don't put that in one place for them. Um, so I think that could be quite a struggle as well. But it depends. I mean, you've got other things like attendance, allowance, and lots of other different uh, things that you can get. Um, and people, but are not, as you say, they're not aware of it. I mean, we, we do sign posts. So when you ring in and register with us, we would sign post you and discuss what's, what you're entitled yeah. to. And we have a benefits advisor and all these elements. But it's, it's a struggle getting it 
through and getting that information through that you are not alone in your journey mm. of being mm. a carer. There are resources, there are funds, there are people that you can turn to, get help for. And don't be afraid of that because I think with the caring, especially in the South Asian community, it's a lot about pride mm. and not actually sharing what's going on in your household and mm. not actually sort of saying, actually, I do need help. So I think carers, you know, just, you know, just go and get the help, go and get the information and make informed decisions about yourself about yourself and your you know how you look after the cared one it's a hard one but um you know we need to appreciate unpaid carers and there is help out there and you're not alone yeah and i really like you say you know this appreciation of um of not actually understanding the work that, that goes on and I think you you know you've hit the nail on the head they feel desperate they feel alone but when actually someone talks to someone like you they realize there is a mm. lot of support out there and that's the key thing the message is not getting out there that there are organizations like yourself that can actually help with this and also help with when it's a language barrier as well Danielle Yes, so uh, on that note, uh, are there enough of you really out there? I think would be the next logical <laughs> question because uh, a, a lot of people would need that kind of help. And are there people getting that sort of advice? I don't think there's enough of us. And once again, it's all to do with funding. It's all to do with how we put into our social care, how we put into organizations such as us, or it's money. But I think the language, like we mentioned, language barrier. I mean, one of the reasons that I'm in this role, because I can speak a bit of Urdu and Bahari, so I can communicate with people. Mm. I can understand Hindi and a bit of Punjabi. So I think those barriers we do have, and we slowly, slowly need to break down. And I think that comes from within the family, though. First of all, you need to say, okay, I am an unpaid carer. I am that. I am a carer for my parents or for my son or somebody with disability or whatever. I am a carer. And how do I do my caring role? By getting support from the community, from councils, from governments, from organizations such as us. So I think that an acknowledgement is the first step to anything, I think, mm. and then go for the resources. Uh, but I think, yeah, we need millions of us, to be honest, in the UK. <laughs> Cannot agree more with you there. So are there, is there any kind of financial support uh, that your organization also provides carers or is it just uh, pure advice? Um, no, we do sign posting. We do sign posting. We do things like you mentioned. We we give advice on carers assessments. Um, we do have some sort of funding, but obviously you have to register with us. We go through a process of talking to you and making sure what you need is there for you. So, you know, there is a route to certain things. But once again, I mean, everybody is struggling with funding sure. at the moment, aren't they? With resources, with finances. And I think it's such a shame. Um, and we could, you know, we all can be supporting everybody a lot more if we have more access to finances really so anybody listening in right now so uh, what would be your advice so if they were to get in touch with let's say somebody like care support uk um what kind of support can they expect in terms of the advice would you just would you help them uh, sort of even fill up the forms would you uh, or would you just tell them what sort of help is available out there or would you do as you said signposting and then help them actually handhold them 
uh, through the whole process? It's a combination of things. So we would signpost, we would kind of like guide on what support is out there, what we support, what the support that we do as well. And I think when you're a carer, it is a combination and different layers of support that is available out there. Mm-hmm. And I think it's um, it, it, I think it's relevant that we need to make sure that everybody is there and supported in some way or another. So yeah, definitely it's a combination of signposting. Social prescribers at the moment are really big. They really help bridge that gap between like the GP and what we try to do. So there's different elements and combinations of different things that we provide as a charity. And as you know, everything is limited, isn't it? So everything is limited. But I mean, the main thing is that you are not alone. Please go and get advice. Use Citizen Advice Bureau, you know, um, you know, you can find out what we do. Um, Carers support West Sussex. We support people in Su- West Sussex. Um, there's a lots of things out there. You've got to do a bit of research, but you're not alone. And, you know, uh, don't be afraid to get the information. Don't be afraid to acknowledge yourself. And, you know, there's lots of things available. But as you say, it's time, logistics, money. is so much going on in people's lives at the moment. But we are here to support as yeah. best we can. I've got a question about the type of carers. Are there different type of carers? So, for example, the kind of work that I've done is you have an an individual who needs care, but they choose to have carers for different things. So they might be on their own, lost their partner. They might just want someone to take them out. Uh, Or they might want to go to the cinema with someone and just have some company. Or then they want someone just to go and have a go to the park with. Um, So are there different carers that offer that kind of support as well? Because obviously they can choose how they want to spend their money. And obviously if it's a bit more personal uh, services Mm -hmm. that they need, then obviously they might want to choose a family member or a nurse. So is, is that kind of where you also kind of offer advice as well? I mean, we can signpost. We do know people that do help those services, so like a befriending service mm. or something like that. So, I mean, the cared for is the person that the carer is looking after. Their needs, um, their wants are slightly different as well yeah. from the carer. So we support the unpaid carer through that kind of journey that they're going through caring for the cared for. But there is different. You could be young carers. You could be young adult carer looking after somebody else. Or you can be a, a young carer like 14, 15 and looking after your mom who's not well. So there's different. I mean, even with Within the care industry, as you know, there's different types of carers and cared for. There's people with different illnesses, different people maybe yeah. have disability. So it's it's not as simple as saying, okay, you know, what, what's going on, what, what's out there. You've got to kind of research. But there are, yeah, there are different. We support unpaid carers, but there are people that are, get paid for their caring services. So they do take them for walks and go into the home. Maybe sometimes some people cook, I think. And yeah. it depends what you're paying for. It's money again, isn't it? So if do, you can ha- afford if you- You you mentioned earlier as well that the adult social care services are pretty much strapped for cash. How how then, what's the solution? Because we've got a population that's ageing. We've got a workforce that is getting less and less. So there's no money coming into the government's uh, hands for them to be able to pay for social adult care services. So what's the solution? I mean, is there something we get more unpaid carers? Is there a a network of uh, like a cooperative type group of people that help individuals? 
Oh, God, this is a difficult question. This is a difficult question because I think, for me personally, um, I think, for example, councils and governments need to be prepared for this, don't they? They need to be prepared. They need to have a vision that our population is getting, you know, elderly and there's more, the, the, the times are changing, the social aspects of our lives are all changing, the demographics are changing, you've got a lot of more diverse communities, so how do we cope for that? And and I think it's such a good question and I can't give a definite answer, but I would say that you need to have a vision. You need to have a plan that this is the reality, this is what's going to happen. I mean, unpaid carers are always going to be there through history. You know, it's just the title, yeah. unpaid carers, because you, you look after somebody, a member of the family. But I know that there are increases in companies that are providing carers, um, and I think a lot of care homes are looking into this as well. Yeah. So I think as governments, as councils, as maybe as a community, community as a society we need to have this yeah. vision about what's going on i think you're right yeah. there and this is the kind of thing that i think that we um when we form the next government i think a conversation needs to happen mm-hmm. with the yeah. nation yeah. Uh, where do we yeah. want to put our priorities yeah. is the yeah. priority yeah. building homes yeah. is it about yeah. keeping yeah. us safe on the streets with the police force yeah. is it about yeah. Yeah. um you know, looking after our elderly. You know, we, yeah. we had that conversation after the Second World War, hence why we yeah. created yeah. A, a National Health Service and why we then yeah. created a minimum wage. And I think the adult social care is something mm. that the country needs to seriously have a yeah. conversation yeah. about, is do we pay yeah. in our yeah. salary? And would you, would you think that that's a good idea, in, you know, to take an agreed amount like we do for the NHS from our salaries for adult social care? I, I think, think yeah. I think we may have just lost uh, Praveen. So, what, what do you think then, Daniel? Do you think would you be prepared to pay a little bit about your salary every month to go for adult social care specifically? Yes, I think that hmm. the, I, I think there's a dire need now that we we live in a country with an aging population, and I think the um, adults and uh, and people um, uh, of uh, of a certain age need to be supported, and therefore. Um, uh, if the government uh, unfortunately doesn't have the funds, and you know they've got to come from somewhere, so I would be very happy to sacrifice mm-hmm. uh, a part of my salary to to go into you know into a fund which could help uh, in the future. I think that's the conversation that we need to have. Where some people are they prepared to? Is it a voluntary thing? Mm-hmm. And and I think as we start looking at our society, you know, are we? Because one of the things with the social adult care and people who are carers, there is. The agencies that provide carers for for work for people who need the care, you've got lots of private agencies that where people are employed, but the, the they're racing after profits. And what we're finding is that rather than racing after the quality of care, they're trying to race for the how they can profit on their margins and one way they do it is that they pay their staff less if they pay their staff less then they don't get the quality then the quality of care that people receive is no good um, and then this is where we need to kind of work out so people are now taking on board their own allowance they're receiving the money and say right I want to spend I want my money spent this way and I think some communities and some councils are offering that as a service so that's why I raised that issue with um, Sister Praveen that mm. basically says like, I've got all this money I actually don't need too much personal care. I've got a family network, but actually I like some company. I'm on my own. The only time I see somebody is when someone drops my medicine off or I get my, you know, my dosset box or the letterbox, and sometimes I don't even get to see that as well. So there's lots of things how people want to spend the money they have, but 
obviously that's a different subject. What we were talking with Sister Praveen was about the um, unpaid carers, which they are extremely suffering. I mean, if you had to give up your job and look after your parents, mm. some people, not everyone, is financially stable enough to do it. Correct. But a vast number of people can't do it. Right. So they need support. How do you do it? Absolutely. Let's maybe now uh, take a few minutes to listen to a discussion we had earlier yeah, with Mr. That. Phil Mohini, who is a policy manager at Independent Age UK. Let's listen in. Sure. So, hi, Phil. Um, so my first question to you is that um, according to um, your organisation, um, senior citizens in the UK need a commissioner um so that they have someone to help voice their views and opinions. Why do you think that's important for them? Yeah, so at Independent Age, we've been calling on the government to bring in an older people's commissioner in England and Scotland, because they already have them in Wales and Northern Ireland. And we think they're a really important way to make older people's issues visible to the government uh, and to bring about change. And the important context for this, obviously, we're living through a cost of living crisis and many people in later life are living in financial hardship. There's actually over 2 million older people across the UK living in poverty and poverty has been growing for 10 years so not everyone might realise and also poverty is quite often invisible, it, it might not be as apparent as people think and as a charity the independent age you know we hear directly from older people all the time for example we have an advice service so we talk to people uh, and help them in different ways just to give an example one woman that we've supported is called Yvonne she's 78 within the last year she's lost over a stone and a half in weight because she's been forced to have just one full meal a day she can't afford to put the lights on in her home so she's using the torch from her phone which really putting her at risk and is really an example of someone who's struggling very much and has a very poor quality of living, very stressed and, and sort of a dangerous way to live. But sadly, this is really typical. We hear so many cases like that. And so this issue of poverty is something that an older person's commissioner could just shine more light on um, and try and just bring more attention to, as well as just representing older people more generally. A lot of older people feel that they're invisible, they feel that they don't have a voice, that no one listens to them. And actually an older person's commissioner would be an independent advocate in government who could really shine a light on those issues and hopefully uh, improve older people's lives. Okay, so um, you've spoken about how uh, senior citizens are struggling in the UK. And um, since the cost of living crisis, every people in every sector across uh, the UK have been struggling. How have senior citizens in particular been struggling with the cost of living crisis and how is your charity helping um, senior citizens deal with that cost of living crisis? Yeah, so like I said, I gave an example of someone whose, whose income is so low that they can't afford to have two or three meals a day. There's people who can't afford to have warm water, who either wash very little or wash with cold water and sort of live in the dark. So these quite bleak situations are actually, they're really real and they're more common than people might realise. At Independent Age, we, we help in three ways, largely. We've got a free advice line, so people can, can phone us up 
Monday to Friday for free. Um, and we support people on a really wide range of issues. So uh, making sure that people get all the benefits that they're entitled to. Many people miss out on those. Maybe they don't realize that they could be getting those. But we also help people with other issues like health or social care, housing, scams. So that's one way we can make a direct difference to people's lives. And to give one example, our helpline advisor to help somebody called Tabani, who's in her 70s, she had been entitled to but missing out on 800 pounds per month worth of financial entitlements so things from the government like pension credit or support with council tax costs and that's actually you know over nine thousand pounds per year that she was missing out on but that through us supporting her she was able to get that and that that really is a life-changing difference another way that we support is we give small grants to small community organizations and that helps them again to provide very direct practical support to older people who are struggling that might be uh, helping them with making meals or taking them to the hospital but things that make a real difference and then lastly we also do campaigning and influencing work and, and we work with the government to try and spotlight issues uh, and come up with solutions to hopefully make improvements for, for older people more widely. Um, so could you briefly explain um, one financial entitlement that senior citizens are entitled to which is the pension credit could you explain to us what it is and how does it help senior citizens yeah sure so pension credit is available across the uk to people who are state pension age or older so at the minute that's 66 or older and it is meant to bring people's income up to a level where hopefully they can meet their basic needs so it's a top up to your existing income so the amount that you get will vary depend on what your income is but it, it'll bring a single person's income up to 201 pounds per week and if you're in a couple it would bring your joint income up to 307 pounds per week so again the amounts vary but typically people might be getting an extra 60 70 pounds a week that can add up to over 3000 pounds a year so substantial money that can really make a difference and help people to you know eat better and hopefully have a warmer home but as well as that money that people get directly Pension credit can also link you to other bits of support that you can also get, and that might be help with your rent, help with council tax, help with uh, health costs or energy costs. And if you're over 75, it would help you to get a free TV license. And those additional things at the maximum could help you get another £8,000 per year. So we're talking quite a lot of money if people are missing out on all of those things. And there's an issue with pension credit, even though it makes such a difference, it's actually a third of the people who should be getting pension credit aren't getting it for various reasons. And that could be over 800,000 people who are missing out on this sort of life-changing amount of money. So it's really important, independent age, you know, we're here to help people um, claim that and make sure they're entitled to it. But we're also talking to the government about what they can do to make sure that everyone's getting this entitlement. So you've spoken uh, about a lot of financial support that senior citizens are entitled to. Why do you think it is that so many people are not aware of this support or are missing out on it? What more do you think uh, can be done or needs to be done so that more people are not missing out? So a lot of people 
maybe aren't aware, may not have heard of something like pension credit or attendance allowance, which is for people who have got disabilities, they might be unaware. Some people really assume that they're not eligible. Maybe they think that benefits aren't for them or they have a little bit of savings or they own their own home. So they think that's not for me. But in many cases, you know, people who own a home can be eligible for pension credit. People with a bit of savings up to a certain level can be eligible for it as well. So there's different reasons for it. We, the government has made some efforts to try and improve how much they raise awareness of something like pension credit, and that's really welcome. We're not sure that's making enough of a difference quickly enough and we would like the government to have a written action plan setting out different things that it could do over the next while um, to really make sure that more people are getting pension credit than they should and that might include you know really better targeting of people who we think should be getting it but aren't getting it that there's ways in which government could be using data that they already hold on people and sort of targeting people more directly and we think that would make a big difference as well. And my last question to you is, what else and what more do you think can be done to help improve the financial state of senior citizens living in the UK? Yeah, well, I think, like I said at the start, the context for this is that pensioner poverty has been growing for 10 years and could continue to grow into the future. So I think it's a pressing issue. One in five older people, broadly speaking, are living in poverty, um, and that's even higher among some other groups. So that would be a bit higher among older people who rent privately, um, among older people from Asian or Black backgrounds, that, that level of poverty is even higher there. And so there's definitely a sense of urgency. It can be easy to assume that older people don't experience much poverty, uh, but that's sadly not the case. I think the main thing that would make a difference that the government can affect is making sure that everyone entitled to pension credit gets it, because we did some research that showed that that would really reduce the pensioner poverty rate if that was the case. But it's other benefits as well. I mentioned attendance allowance, which is a benefit for people with disabilities. There's also housing benefit. You know, not everyone who should be getting housing benefit to help with rent is actually getting it. There's support with council tax, etc. So really, there are a lot of entitlements, and they are entitlements. You know, people are owed them; that they have a right to them. They've contributed to tax, and so they're sort of entitled to those things, but they're missing out. So that's where the biggest difference could be made um, in terms of what the government could do. Right. So that was a discussion we were ha- we had earlier with. Uh... Phil Mohini, who is a policy manager at Independent Age UK. And uh, before that, uh, we were having a discussion with uh, Ms. Perveen, and uh, this was all about. So what we're talking about is uh, really the uh, the issues that uh, people are having around financial frustrations yeah. and, um, uh, and, and the cost of living crisis and uh, the indebtedness. Um, and that can be a very, very concerning thing. So uh, Mohammed bin Jesh, may Allah be pleased with him, a companion of the Holy Prophet, may Allah uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said we were sitting with the messenger of Allah, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, when he raised his head towards the sky. Then he put his palm on his forehead and said, Subhanallah, what a strict issue has been revealed to me. We remained silent and were afraid. 
The following morning, I asked him, O Messenger of Allah, what is the strict issue that has been revealed? He said, by the one in whose hand is my soul, if a man were killed in a battle for the sake of Allah, then brought back to life, then killed and brought back to life again, then killed and he, and he owed a debt, he would not enter paradise until his debt was paid off. Uh, Nisai, wow, this is... This yeah. is uh, so if you just reflect on that, how much, is, how much do you think you probably owe somebody? And, and how important is it to really pay that off? Yeah, and not only that, I think sometimes we talk about big amounts, but actually I think this refers to anything. You borrow something, (coughs) to give it it back. Is it, I'll owe you a cup of coffee, I'll buy this time, you buy next time. Or it, it, it boils down to every element of your, of your life. You know, you go, you go somewhere and you put petrol in the car. Now, is it? that you shared the petrol or is it that someone picked you up and took you somewhere and you didn't have to pay for petrol? Is that also a debt? Was there an agreement to it? How far do you take this? And if you imagine if everybody understood it properly, people always probably be in a much healthier position, right? This I think also relates to not wasting anything either, being very cautious of how you spend your money, what you do, uh, do you squander it? Because that's another thing that we spoke about is that people talk about I'm going to completely change the topic slightly, but they talk about having no money, mm. but have a mobile phone with a contract, mm. and mm. then they have their mm. all their TV channels. Well, their, that's their living network. beyond your means, and that's that's absolutely uh, that that is a no-no when it comes yeah. to um, you know Islamic way of life, because uh, the Islamic way of life is 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 one hundred percent about living within the, within your means. Work hard, do your best, uh, and then you know be happy with what you have. So what about people then um, who, say, are born into a family which has got full of riches? Um, does that mean they don't work hard? Does that mean they need to work or do they need to spend their money a bit differently? You know, it's all these kind of questions no, so, that people okay. have, right? Well, good luck to them is what, what I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would say to that is that, uh, yeah, it's a, a, every, a, you know, at the end of the day, you are responsible for your own actions in yeah. front of God. Yeah. That's what our firm belief is and everybody will be will be held accountable in the afterlife and uh, and a lot of us in this yeah. life as well uh, depending on how uh, God's, yeah. God wants to uh, I, I think it's important to, to recognize and if anybody has an opinion on that they can always give us a call on 0208-687-7878 but actually if you have lots and lots of money you shouldn't feel guilty about having all that wealth as long as you pay your 100%. dues on it. Yeah, correct. Because we say that if you spend your money in a good cause for someone, yeah. God gives you more. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there's, there's nothing wrong yes. being, is with being wealthy in Islam. Yes, yes. Um, they, they people have been feel wo- that sometimes, don't they? they just feel- uh, yeah, the, I think it's, it's a very UK-ish phenomenon that, uh, you know, actually, probably not anymore, but mm. uh, at least until the 80s, uh, certainly until the late 70s, it was it was the thing here that, you know, people with, with with riches were supposed were, were looked down upon by the middle class and were thought of as as people who'd stolen money, uh, whereas they would have earned that money fair and square. So um, 
there's nothing wrong with being rich uh, as long as it's legitimate. Um, as long as you're right, you're, you're paying your dues mm-hmm. on it. As long as you're, you're supporting the people who actually need help, as you're supporting um, uh, the, uh, the people around you, as you're supporting your family in the right manner. Um, and uh, there is also nothing wrong with uh, with buying things you can afford if you're rich. Yeah. But I guess the point that both we're both trying to make is that if you can't afford that mobile phone, then don't buy that mobile phone. Or, or buy a different mobile buy phone. <laughs> Don't buy the latest mobile phone. Exactly. You don't keep, have to have iPhone 15 to keep, survive. <laughs> you know, keeping up with the Joneses is there's yeah. an English phrase, or, or you know. It, it, but yeah, you know, the reason why you know we're having these open discussions, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm picking your brain there as well, and also talking about it because people are embarrassed about having literally yeah, been able to even answer yeah, a conversation a topic, like yes. that. They'll say, yeah. "Well, no, why are you asking me that question? Or well, you think I've got lots of money? You know, it's one of those you get into the defensive mode that they what you you know is that a new jumper you bought? Sorry, mm. you wore that jumper." and that shirt for the last four days but actually it's people have life choices and they spend their money differently that's the thing I always talk about some people like to have a nice car but some people like to go on holiday regularly some people don't have a car but have a very nice cycle or they use public transport or then they go out and have a lavish meal so all these things it's entirely up to you, and you decide how you want but, to spend. But your I guess money. also, you know, you, 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 I think you're touching on a very important issue. I think at the end of the day, uh, we've got to understand that l- what life is, what what our purpose on this planet is. Yeah, okay, is, yeah. is our purpose really to have a nice car, to have the best mobile phone, to go on two holidays a year, uh, to send our kids to private education? Is is that the end goal? Is that the purpose? Uh, of life, or is the purpose different? Fine, if you have the money, if you can afford those things, there's nothing wrong with, with using your wealth to to actually go on a holiday or buying a nice car. But, but be sure to know exactly what is it that you're trying to do with your life. What is are you are you really doing justice to the purpose of being on this planet? Are you, uh, are you really paying your dues that you ought to in terms of helping? your neighbors, helping mm. the needy, supporting uh, in a time when so many people need support. Yeah, because you, I mean, we'll, we'll, I'll ask you kind of another discussion point, but actually, if you think of these business owners who uh, are in an industry, but they employ so many people, and if they didn't do well, those people wouldn't have a job. Mm. The industry wouldn't go around. Right. But how do they treat their workers and how well do they pay them and how quickly do they pay them? That's another thing because one of the things about small business owners or self-employed people, one of the biggest challenges is the late payment from these big organizations. They don't pay them on time. Therefore, they then can't pay their staff. They live in, in a, a constant cycle of of poverty or a small business owners. Uh, these big cycles that happen or small cycles of of the kind of supply chain, etc., affects small businesses a lot more. Some of the big businesses can ride it out. So there's lots of things. But actually, what I wanted to talk about also is that the lack of communication that people have. So when, so when you meet someone or your your friend or or even in in marriages as well, people don't talk about one another's finances. Mm. They think, well, okay, we got together, you, your money, my, my money. But actually, Islam is very different, right? You know, whether if you're in a married religion in Islam, your money actually is, is your wife's money. Yeah, but absolutely. but your wife's money is yeah, not your yeah. money. No, absolutely. <laughs> your your money is, a, uh, <laughs> is everybody's money, but your wife's money is only your wife's money. Yeah, that's right. Because, you know, you at the moment, you know, it's things are changing, but... 
you know, the breadwinner has always been traditionally the the even in the West as well. But that yeah. that that has changed in the West, and 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 uh, but a lot of actually my friends when I when I especially my Western friends when mm. I share this this Islamic philosophy with them, they're they're very pleasantly surprised that in yeah. Islam there is no fifty percent rule. Yeah. There is uh, as the 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 husband or the father is supposed to be the. Uh, the guardian and supposed to look after all the members of the family, including the wife, everything that uh, that all their needs, including yeah. housing and, and and taking care and food and, and all their other needs. And if the wife works, uh, all that money is the wife's money and wife's alone. Uh, and that is uh, is something which I think is very different. Uh, now in the West and in lo- actually, yeah. uh, to be to be honest, in the East as well. Yeah, and and I think also this whole thing about. Money. I mean, we as grown-ups, we're kind of forced into having to understand how to spend and where to spend our money. Mm. But if you're growing up as a child and you you think, well, what's this thing about money? I mean, all I ask for is I want something. I'd say, mm. Mum and Dad, can I have this, please? And it just appears. No concept of money had to be earned. Absolutely. <laughs> and money had to then be. No, uh, you know what? Moved. This reminds me of a joke, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so my daughter, who's who's now eighteen. I remember when she was four or five, um, uh, you know, she uh, once she said, uh, why do you have to go to work? I said, well, I have to go to work to earn money. She said, why do you have to go to work to earn money? You can just go to ATM and withdraw money. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you always do. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, yes, you're right. Uh, kids have to be taught that money has to be earned and money has to be saved. And uh, and and there is a, a certain way that you have that you're supposed to spend money. Yeah, and and I also think that as um, the currency is going to change, and we've discussed this many times with this new digital world of currency, you literally you're not going to be able to hand over a note to someone. Yeah. So like, here's ten quid, fifty quid, or whatever. It's going to be something else. So let me here's my mobile phone. Let me just share this money to you. It's just numbers. But back in the day, you could feel the the hard cash that you had in your pocket. You felt, you know, I've got some money here and I need to, as I'm spending it, that what's in my hand is going down, down, down. But actually, if you're spending it digitally on a, on a debit card or however, you don't feel that. You don't feel that, absolutely. And it's a very yeah. strange thing where, you know, we pay um, like uh, additional money for various funds that we do in a community, mm. you know, like building out mosques and building out, uh, paying for our children to become missionaries, etc. Totally, we not even a, for, you know, other humanitarian causes, like yeah. you know, paying for the uh, food bank or uh, paying for the local charity yeah. or um, uh, supporting the charity Walk for Peace or something like that. And, and, and people like to pay cash because they felt, they feel that they've actually spent some money. But actually, if you just put on a card, you don't feel it as much. So I think this whole concept, this relationship, well, has you do, to be discussed with children. 100%. But you do feel it when you look at your bank statement. <laughs> That's when it really hits you, doesn't it? I, you get that ping, don't you? X amount of money just left your account. <laughs> Sorry, I was not aware of that. Which card was that? Okay, oh, I see my children have that card. But no, no, I, I, I totally understand. But what the point we're trying to make, and that, yeah. again, you know, if you guys got a view on it, it's, we, we're not having these discussions we're not teaching our children from a young right. age how to save money for a few fu- for the future and, and, so and how you- not to squander money which, which reminds yeah. me of a, a verse in the holy quran and it says and give to the kinsman his due and to the poor poor and the wayfarer and the squander not thy wealth 
and and the squander not thy wealth extravagantly. Verily, the squanderers are brothers of Satan's, and Satan is ungrateful to his Lord. Chapter 17, verse 27 and 28. So squandering your wealth away is 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 not something which is encouraged at all, is discouraged massively in the Quran. Yeah. I mean, this whole thing about being good with money, some people always say, oh, I'm no good with money, I'll let my partner do it. Or mm. actually, um, yeah, no, I want to, you, you go out and you want to spend money. Some people say, no, we'll just share it amongst ourselves, you know, whatever it is. And other people say, no, no, I just want to pay for what I bought and whatever. So various people have different strengths and weaknesses. Some yeah. people budget. Some people know what I need to spend. Hmm. And sometimes some people can't afford even to be able to think about spending an extra penny over the, what allowance they have. Because if you're receiving some um, benefit and you, and you have a, a certain amount of money no, and you don't have the ability to earn extra money, you're you're on a job, it pays you X amount and your mortgage is X, Y, Z, your outgoings, and that's it. So you have to learn how to manage it. But some people are really good at it. Hmm. Some people are not very good at it. They get themselves sure. into further debt and then they have to uh, go on a credit card or then they have to go and borrow some money. And all these things, and well, you know, you mentioned a statistic at the beginning of the of the hour of how ridiculous the amount of tr- one point something eight trillion hmm. uh, our UK residents are, are in debt with. Correct. That's a lot of money. Hmm. I mean, if we had all that paid back, we wouldn't be in half the problems we're in now because we're in about three trillion in debt anyway with the IMF yeah. and we're 1.8 trillion in debt yeah. with our own money and our, and our credit cards yeah. so all these things have to happen and when I want to talk about the strength so if you can not have to rely on other people and you can learn to manage it yourself then that's a really good thing yeah. and if we can instill those good practices earlier on in life 100% and I think also it kind of way I see it, it relates to food as well if you can learn to control how much you eat when you're fill third fill yeah. you don't over do eat, things, yeah. yeah? You don't overspend. You mm. you don't over. You don't waste do, food. Yeah, yeah, you don't do things too much in in the extreme. So, for example, say you want to uh, go to park and play some football or something, or you know, go out with some friends. Doesn't mean you go out all the time. You stay out all day, all night. There's a moment time when you've got to give time to your family, your sister, your your brothers, your sibling, your parents. Everyone has an equal right of your time, so irrespective if you are someone who then wants to go and spend all your time, like His Holiness, as Minister Masoud Ahmed said today, in mm. an example of where some of the uh, people of during the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, accepted Islam, and they fell in love with so much of God Almighty, they just wanted to completely leave the world mm. and just spend their whole time in God. But God said, no, you, you not only do you have rights to God, but you also have rights to your family as well. Mm. So there has to be a balance, has to be a balance. And, and that's why I think this whole thing about money needs to be a balance, you need to be educated, you need to know when to spend, not to spend, how to spend, what to spend money on. You're absolutely, and you're, I want to maybe spend a, t- a couple of minutes on this very important yeah, go issue ahead. that you, you've ta- we touched upon, which is, uh, you know, uh, teaching it young. Yeah. To to kids, how to spend money, how to be responsible, how to be frugal, um, and how to and, and teaching them the difference between wants and needs, because it that is I think really at the heart of what we what we're trying to do here. And when these factors, all of these things are taken into consideration, um, then I think only then will our children become responsible adults um, of tomorrow. 
and that is the kind of um, uh, th that is the kind of progeny we want to raise people who are uh, children who understand uh, not only the importance of saving money, but also the difference between wants and needs. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And also it, it kind of boils down to something you touched earlier about happiness. What makes you content? What is it, having the fastest car all the time, mm. earning earning the money all the time and reaching to the top and suddenly, yeah, I'm there, I've got it. I'm... Sometimes people find when they make it, as they call it, make it, they're the most loneliest people. And actually, happiness is probably the most important. There was uh, reported by Fadallah bin Abdaid al-Ansari. Um, Allah be pleased with him. He heard that the messenger of Allah may peace and blessing of Allah be upon him. He said that happiness is due to him who is guided to Islam and possesses provisions that suffices him for his day and remains content. And it's in Dhamidhi. So that, I think that's kind of a nice kind of way to kind of end end the show just as we come into the conclusion and just before we we end um uh, there is this in fact maybe you might want to recite it here in in the holy quran in chapter 2 verse uh, 283 uh yes so um Allah says in uh, chapter 2 verse 283 o ye who believe when you borrow from one another for a fixed period then write it down and let a scribe write it in your presence faithfully and no scribe should refuse to write because Allah has taught him so let him write and let him who incurs the liability dictate and he should fear Allah his Lord and not diminishing and not diminish anything therefore mm. but if the person incurring the liability be of low understanding or be weak or be unable himself to dictate then let someone who can watch his interests dictate with justice yeah. unquote it, and it's, it's so important that every aspect of our lives, it's about what it is, there's always but this some is the detail sort of that Quran goes into. This is, I mean, this is just, uh, this, this is so, um, um, this is so gratifying uh, as well that, you know, God cares about us. Exactly right. So, as we say, talking about money and being openly about it and just having a good relationship with it and understanding it is kind of, the best way forward. So look, we're, we're about to come to the five, five o'clock news. Uh, just stay with us. Um, we'll be talking about um, another fantastic subject about extremism, you know, what drives radicalization. And stay with us, listen to that. And here you go. Here is the five o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording. And lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum and welcome back to the Drive Time Show. Thank you very much for staying with us for another hour of some amazing content for you to listen to, to, listen to us who we are here today. Peace be upon you. My name is Hanif. I'm with Danielle and Raza for the second hour to talk about a subject that I just mentioned just at the end of the last hour extremism what drives radicalization we do have an expert in Russia who knows the subject inside out really well and has got lots of information about it so i will be relying on him a lot more although myself and danielle will be inputting into this as well we're very lucky that we'll be having some awesome guests with us today to talk about this subject will we have as i mentioned earlier steve hewitt who understands the 
um, and about the research is the terrorism and counterterrorism in the past and present, and also is from the University of Birmingham. And also, we'll be talking to Christian Cornut as well on this subject. Also, we've been asking you a question on Instagram. If you're interested in that, go there. You still got time to take part in it, and we'll we'll relieve the uh, release the uh, results to that. And we're asking you what drives people to becoming radicalized. I mean, is it loneliness and isolation? Is it a lack of opportunities? Is it marginalization and discrimination? And what's at the top of top most people's minds, is it the conflict of war? So um, there, the results are coming in thick and fast, and thank you for keep sending them in. And also, if something like that, this topic is so topical in so many people's minds, give us a call on 0208-687-7878. And remember, you can always tweet us or send us a message on our social medias at Voice of Islam UK. So, this subject... What drives radicalization? Dan, you're about to jump in there. Yeah, Go so for it, man. actually, no. What I thought would be pertinent to talk about yeah. is on on the. It would be very um, important to talk um, about the event which actually is happening tomorrow, which is the Pan African Peace Symposium, which is happening here in the uh, House of Victory, Bethel Fatou Mosque, which is the largest mosque in Western Europe. Yep. So. Um, uh, you know, that's one of the many efforts that our community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, is making in these rather very difficult times uh, to create an environment for peace. Um, and uh, this is an event which is open to uh, to anybody who wants to uh, to attend. It is hosted by the Pan African Association within the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. It will be held tomorrow evening here in the here in Morden in the uh, uh, Bethul Mosque. Um, and uh, uh, the idea really is to bring people of various backgrounds and creeds um, under one roof, break bread together, and and talk about how we can achieve peace yeah. in rather very very troubling times. No, you're so spot on and a great shout out because I think when I was walking up the mm. steps here in the big hall adjacent to the studios, setting they up. were setting up the the tables. So, Reza, look, the, you know, we're a, a media station, aren't we? We're, we're a Voice of Islam radio. We have a platform. Mm. We talk about these subjects. But there is this concern that the media reporting of conflict, especially in the Middle East we're seeing today, aren't we? Yeah. That it's, it's radicalization like towards extremism, especially like in Europe. You see, um, this this is a very interesting question, and it comes to the surface every couple of years here and there. Hmm. Before I, I, I speak about this, or before we continue with this, yeah. how about we just mention very briefly what is happening just in, in Europe? The reason why I want to do this is that, look, you and I, we, we have personal experiences, we have personal opinions hmm. on this topic, um, I know personally speaking, after 9-11, I had to go through a period of where I felt there was hostility against my religion, against me being a Muslim, against the way that my mother used to dress, against the way my sister used to dress, or um, you know any Muslim woman for that matter. We've seen it after Brexit that there was a spike, a huge spike in Islamophobic attacks. And... The question that we're have we're having to deal with now. I listened to a radio station. I think last week it was, mm-hmm. and while I was going to a funeral, the 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 lingo that was being used by some of the 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 callers, some of the people who called into that radio station, the lingo that was being used by the host itself, 
I thought to myself, I I I couldn't listen to it. After 35 minutes, I just had to switch off because it was making me really really emotional. It was making me agitated, it was making me uncomfortable. And now multiply that with the things that are happening just in Europe alone. We have the example of France, we have the example of Germany, we have the example of Poland, we have the example of some other Eastern European countries as well, as well as um, Austria with their um, uh, government, we have the example of Italy. So put all of that together. And most of the time, and especially now when we have the, the, the war in Gaza that is being perpetrated, you multiply that and you imagine a 16-year-old, a 15-year-old, a 14-year-old even who is listening and who is seeing this. A Muslim, right? Mm. Well, I'm talking from a, from a Muslim point of view. In my case, I was 16 at that time when 9-11 happened. And in that moment, when you are being bombarded with, oh, this is your religion. Oh, this is your faith. Oh, this is what you prophets. Oh, this is your book. Oh, yeah. this is... And it goes on and on and on. I'm thinking maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm just you know yep. speaking from a different point of view here. But how? What good is that doing? Yeah. Is there anything and and like even the minutest possibility that you are doing anything good to the society by reporting in this way by using that? I I, I would even say that that dangerous language. Yeah. You know this thing you spoke about when you were 16 years old? My moment, same thing, mm. was doing a Salman Rushdie mm. uh, when, mm. when he bought out his yeah. book. Yeah. And, yeah. and everyone said, uh, you know, you're Muslim, you want to go and kill him, do you? Mm. I think, what? All of a sudden, you're a spokesperson for the entire Muslim nation. Yeah. Why, why, do I, why would I want to go and not do that? Not only that, my issue with, with this line of questioning is that why do we begin to raise questions on the religion. You know, we don't blame Christianity when Ku Klux Klan mm. uh, kills uh, some, some blacks uh, because they are uh, motivated by the Bible. Mm. Do we? Mm. We don't. We don't. Uh, and, and similarly, there are so many other examples of that. So Hindus, why is Buddhist, you name it. Why is Islam always in the dark? when a, a certain unfortunate act is committed by a very, very small yeah. minority of so people. That's a good question, Raza, really. I mean, you, you are... Uh, Again, this is... I have my thoughts, but actually, because this is something really... Because when you say look at people, you are yeah. an, also yeah. an imam as well, right? You, you lead your representative. Actually, you are that person, yeah. right? And, and this, is, this is exactly the problem that I had to face. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah. It was a substitute teacher. I still remember the name. I won't say it. And he, for some reason, f whatsoever, during that time, so again, we're talking post 9-11, like literally days and weeks mm -hmm. after, for some reason, he used to get so many um, lessons with my class or with mm -hmm. my group, which, which never happened before. And now this man was walking around in school with a piece of paper, with the verses of the Holy Quran, taken completely out of context. Yeah. And in front of everyone, the whole entire class, again, I was a spokesperson for the entire Muslim yeah. population in the world, yeah. trying to explain to this man who yeah. was a teacher, who was a figure of authority, who was a lot more um, maybe slick with his words and whatnot than I was at Ooh, that time. A lot more knowledgeable. No, I mean, as a person of authority, yeah. as a figure of authority. 
And and I, I'll I'll tell you one thing that was one of the reasons why I decided to become an imam. And that's the change that it caused in me. However, that was because I grew up within this community. I had guidance. I had knowledge. I had um, advice from my seniors, from my elders, from my imam, from my parents, and then ultimately from the caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community at that time. And throughout, which is why we don't have extremists within the community, which is why we don't have youngsters being radicalized. However, the way that the world is working today, I am very concerned. I am concerned because this has never been as extreme as it is now. Because social media, you have all of these social media, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat. You see what is happening in the world live as we speak. Yeah. I can pull up a page. I know a live stream from someone, let's say, in, in one of those areas. Let, let's maybe ask this question to uh, our first guest uh, for this hour, who is uh, Steve Hewitt, a member of the history department at the University of Birmingham and researches terrorism and counterterrorism, the past and present, including in the UK, US and Canada context. Aslam alaikum, peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you very much, Steve, for joining us. So, Steve, uh, uh, I don't know whether you were listening into the discussion we we're having in the last couple of minutes. Why do you think a religion is put in a dock, in the dock, when, um, when, a, when certain people uh, or certain followers, a very tiny minority of that followers, whatever religion that might uh, might be, commit a horrific act? Yeah, I think that we've seen that trend in the last few years, and actually, I think you could take it back even longer, especially in the UK context, yeah. to thinking of Northern Ireland yeah. Yeah. and, you know, uh, a minority of Catholics involved in violence and then a kind of generalization. I think it, that what you've described is only applied when you have um, groups that are out, considered to be outside of the, the majority or the mainstream. So, example, I, I, I'm a white male. If uh, a white male creates, causes violence and, and does an act of terrorism, no one sort of generalizes and suggests that all white males are terrorists. Mm -hmm. um, and but that same, you know, that same distinction is not made when it comes to other groups. And mm -hmm. that is about stereotyping. That's about discrimination. Uh, it's about racism, Islamophobia, uh, various things. And, and so I think there is a double standard in terms of who gets called out and who doesn't get called out. And I think that's true now. And I think it's uh, been true in the past as well. So, I mean, you do this. This is your profession, Steve. You look at the data. You look at the facts. You look at what exactly is the background to all of these things. So when you hear this, for example, in the news, from, from our point of view, we jokingly always say, um, you know, in the past, when whenever some of these atrocities, terror, uh, terroristic activities have happened, um, the first thing of for us to think about is please don't let it be a Muslim. Yeah. But yeah. when when it comes to when you see this in the news, when you see this in the media, because your academic work in the U.S. and U U.K. focusing on counterterrorism is not just looking at the at the, at the surface of things, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've done some studies because one of the, the trends in terrorism at the moment in, in the UK, in the US, in Canada, where I should say I'm Canadian, not American, uh, has been what's often referred to as lone actor terrorism or lone wolf terrorism, yeah. where you've got lone individuals who aren't, you know, aren't part of an organized group, or aren't part of a terrorism plot who are carrying out acts of violence. 
And often it's a really complex uh, divide between personal motivations and then tied to either wider ideological, political, religious, or religious claim motivations. But it, it often comes down to lone individuals in their, their own situation where some of them have had failed lives and then almost as a way of trying to salvage a failed life because they've been involved in criminal activities or they've had problems with drugs and alcohol. They then tie their own personal story to a wider political, ideological, religious narrative and commit an act of violence. And that's become the kind of dominant model of terrorism at the moment. But MI5, other groups in the past have said that there's no sort of set pattern, no, you know, there's no assembly line or conveyor belt that explains why someone, I mean, lots of people obviously are angry, lots of people sometimes hold extreme views, but a very tiny minority of those people, and mainly men, I should add, go on to do acts of violence. And it's, it, I think it is a combination of personal circumstances, personal factors combined with wider, you know, global events or, or uh, other situations that are going on and, and uh, that explain why an individual chooses to go from, you know, just being angry about something to actually going and doing an act of extreme violence. How dangerous do you think um, the situation becomes when somebody of the stature of Suela Bravman then goes on and writes about it uh, and says that uh, a march uh, is only going to promote radicalism um, when it's a peace march? Yeah, I mean, I think that's clearly... Uh, and, uh, and I think the fact that her comments obviously have gone beyond the acceptable is the fact that so many of her colleagues are distancing themselves mm. from those comments. And I, I think it's just pouring fuel on a fire it's really irresponsible. I mean, there was a study that was leaked, a study from, this is back, I think, around 2004, a study that was done by the Home Office and the Foreign Office looking at young British Muslims, why they were engaged in uh, extreme, extremism or why they were angry. And one of the things it found was there was anger over, over what they saw as a double standard when it came to Western foreign policy, how, for example, Israel was treated differently from other countries. And I think there needs to be some acknowledgement of, you know, that there are historical grievances in, in place. And that, of course, doesn't justify Hamas killing children and, and civilians. Sure. But it, it's a much more complex situation. <laughs> and again, it, we don't live in a world anymore where you can have complexities and nuance. We kind of live in a very stark world where you're either for or against something. And I think that, that Suella Braverman and, and those comments, which I think are it's more about her campaigning to be the next leader of the yep. Tory party uh, in many respects, it's not helpful. It doesn't add any kind of nuance and complexity. It just, again, divides communities yeah. and divides people and divides people in Britain. I think it's hugely unhelpful and it's hugely divisive and it's hugely dangerous that a person of that stature, and, and even if that is to promote her own candidacy, uh, you know, if that's the precedent that's being set, then that's not a great precedent, is it? She picked a horrible time for that, didn't she? <clears throat> yeah. I mean, one of the things to call it a, a hate march, although these marches seem to be very emotive, <laughs> don't they? I was there. Yeah. I went to the last one. Yeah. I, I will tell you it wasn't a hate march. Yeah. I don't, I, I've, I've been to every corner of Trafalgar Square. I tried, I tried, I tried. There was nothing that you could even remotely mm. call a hate march. I'll tell you, every entrance, every exit that you have Trafalgar Square, I went to those. 
I I I took audios. I t- I spoke to people mm, before, yeah. after, during, yes. and it was it was emotional. Okay. All there was was pe- where people were being emotional. They were sad. They were upset, but mm. none of that okay. you know hate. It, it, and again, I think we can see again a, a double standard because uh, the conservative government has been pushing freedom of speech, including freedom of speech on university campus, and that often means freedom of the far right or people on the right to speak. But again, when it comes to views that they may not agree with, then suddenly they're they're much more quiet about yeah. protecting people's uh, free, freedom of speech. Yeah. Uh, talking about those double standards, um, Steve, um, why is it that the media bends over backwards and always makes it a point to say, uh, for example, when um, a hospital is bombed in Gaza, they would say that, yeah, uh, 100 people have reportedly been killed. Uh, and then there is always a caveat saying, uh, well, this is uh, these are figures from the Hamas-run health ministry. But yeah. then when a statement comes from the Israeli government, there are no caveats there. Yeah, no, I mean, I think... Israel, obviously, there's a, a PR war going on mm. on the part of both sides. And I think the Israeli narrative, initially, I, I'm not sure that the media was doing that, but I think the Israeli government's been pushing that narrative to, and now the media sort of feels obliged to add that bit about, you know, coming from the Hamas run, uh, that you know, these figures are potentially dubious. And I've, I've heard Israeli spokespeople then challenge as to what their figures are, and then they waffle mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. kind of ignore the question. So I think this is all part of the campaign that's, you know, as part of this conflict, that it's about trying to sway public opinion, to create doubt about what's happening, um, and, and through social media, and social media just adds to that. And again, I mean... Uh, and, I, and they're you know, succeeding. I, so, sorry to, to, to interrupt yeah. you. Uh, sure. I, I was listening to an interview yesterday um, of none other than Mr. Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, who actually... Why were you listening to me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sorry, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> sorry. But I did. And uh, he actually uh, was, was doubting these figures of 10,000 people and 5,000 uh, children um, uh, being killed. And they said, well, no, no, these figures you can't depend on because they came from Hamas. Yeah, and, and again, if you think about it, if it's 10,000, what if it's 8,000? Exactly. People, I mean, what if it's 5,000? <laughs> Correct. What if it's 12,000? I mean, yeah. it's thousands of lives have been lost. And I, 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 it's not surprising given how densely populated, how small this territory is, that if you're going to have a military conflict, there's obviously going to be civilians that are, are who's, yeah. who lose their lives. Now, Steve, one question that I think we we will have to talk about, we will have to discuss is, it is very unfortunate. It's very tragic. It's it's barbaric what is happening in, in in that region. But how do we? What do we do? Is there anything that we can do to stop or to prevent from from that emotion, from that hate, maybe even from that frustration and that anger that coming into our societies? Do you think think that the UK, the US government? Are they doing enough? Because ultimately, whatever they decide, whatever rhetoric they use, will have an impact on on, on society. Um, and we are seeing it already that we have two parties being built within within society. That we have two extremes. But again, it's the double standards that one one side is not being taken serious, um, and have the whole PR campaign against them, while the other ones. 
they control everything. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely understand why people are frustrated with the British government. I'm not, I have to say, I'm not convinced that the British government has much impact in terms of Israeli policy. I mean, obviously, Britain has a whole historic role and is, you know, partially responsible for, for the problems that have occurred in the region. I think the U.S. government, on the other hand, is clearly in position to influence the, the policy and, um, you know, pressure on the U.S. government. I think tomorrow the march is, is going towards the U.S. embassy. And I think the U.S. government, because Israel is the largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid, and you can already see some of the comments that have come out of the Biden administration now being echoed by Israel, where clearly the Biden administration is beginning, I think, to have some second thoughts about the kind of blank check they initially gave Israel, because they're obviously receiving flack from Arab allies, but also even at home. I mean, the state of Michigan, which is an important state in the presidential election mm -hmm. next year, there's a large Arab American population. Biden needs to win that state, and he's alienating mm -hmm. uh, voters. So actually, even domestic politics in the U.S., I think, come into play. So, yeah, no, I understand people's frustration. Uh, I think the U.S. is in position to influence yeah. Israel. I'm not sure that Britain is in a similar position. So, so Steve, when you mentioned Northern Ireland and you mentioned many other things as well, the and you're now just mentioning Michigan as well, ultimately it's going to be a political solution. This, what's going on, obviously, is horrific on both sides and what we're seeing, corpses being eaten by dogs because they can't find food. It's yeah. just unbelievable. Yeah. And yeah. I, most people's hearts bleed when they hear these stories. Yeah. But this the thing that Northern Ireland conflict came to an end, and when you talk to the people who were in the thick or thin of it, the reason why they came to the negotiation table was because they couldn't go on with what the alternative was to not having peace. So how quickly do you think, I think Reza was kind of touching on this mm -hmm. as well, how quickly can we arrive at that realization in the conflict with what's going on in Gaza that it actually the alternative not to come to the negotiating table is more death and destruction and horrific scenes of Palestinians. Of Palestinians. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think there clearly cannot be a return to the status quo after this. And what I, what my fear is that there's going to be all of this rhetoric about, you know, no more status quo, there needs to be a two-state solution, and then as soon as it's over, this conflict's over, it'll be right back yeah. to to you know where it was before and again i think the united states is in it has to be in position mm. uh, mind you if you get uh, donald trump elected next year clearly he's not going to pressure israel so my concern again is this we are going to return to the status quo and these events as we've seen is just this recurrent cycle of violence is going to continue to occur over and over again um, in, in perpetuity and, and yeah. yeah, it's really, it is really obviously sad, depressing, uh, horrendous what's happening. And, but also that there seems to be very little prospect that things are going to change anytime soon. Yeah. Okay. How, well, how, how sad, horrendous and wrong do you think Steve is not to support a ceasefire under these circumstances? Yeah, I mean, I think we are obviously at the point where a ceasefire is is overdue, and if you whether they call this ceasefire or a pause or whatever, there needs to be uh, some stop to this. I mean, uh, Gaza has been incredibly pounded over the last few weeks, and uh, as you mentioned, someone mentioned already. I mean, it's just horrendous what yeah. is happening now. Yeah. 
Okay, well, Steve Hewitt, thank you very much uh, for your time and really appreciate you joining us today and hope we have you again on this particular subject again. Great, thank you. Uh, You're most welcome. So that was Steve Hewitt, a member of the History Department at the University of Birmingham. Research in terrorism and counter-terrorism in the past and present including in the UK, US and Canada's context. So, you know, that was a, the question you asked at last minute about should there be a pause, not a pause? Whereas, a, you know, when we talk about war, I mean, in the Islamic perspective... I will tell you, I will tell yeah. you exactly. Hmm. This, this, is, this is not a war. What do you call it? This is a one-sided approach. This is a one-sided bombardment. Um, when you talk about war, when when we talk about the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, these were, and going back even in, I mean, not specifically Muslims, but when you go back in, in, in history, those were wars, one-to-one, face-to-face. But even in those wars, you had rules, you had laws that you adhered by, that you had to abide by. Mm. I'm thinking of that example of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, where, and this again, after 13 years of persecution, after many, many people killed, after opposition, after this, after that, when they were forced to migrate from the place that they loved so much. So the armies meet and the companions come to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and say that we have occupied the water source. And now the enemy wants to have water. What should we do? Mm. Mind you, this is again, he had absolutely every single right to refuse that request, Mm. to refuse them going even close to the water. But he didn't. And, and and mind you, this is an army we're talking about. This These is an army that we're, we're not talking about civilians. Exactly, there. We're not about women and children. No, no, but but we're talking. We're talking we're, so hey, let's make yes, that distinction yes, yes, because that's exactly. a very very important Absolutely distinction right. to make. Absolutely. So he even didn't stop that supply of water no. even to the army. And and his army wasn't professional. His army wasn't trained. It was a ragtag. It was exactly. So you had young kids or or elderly or or there was like I think one or two horses. Exactly. And no foot soldiers who were trained and professional soldiers. None mm. of that. But on the other hand, on the other side, you had an army three times the size of theirs, professionally trained, and this is what they did, and this is what they were really good at. But he didn't forbid that. When he used to send his armies to other territories and to defend the Muslim empire or, you know, mm. to, for any reason whatsoever, again, not offen- uh, um, uh, offensive wars, but defensive wars. Mm. He would give them a set of rules that they needed, that they must hmm. had to uh, abide by. Don't kill children. Don't kill women. Don't kill the elderly. Don't kill uh, uh, people of religion. Don't don't cut down trees. I mean, who does that? Hmm. But it worked. The reason why, again, this is a separate discussion, but yeah. the reason why it turned into so... Uh, such such a such an empire was that people believed in the message, mm. and they knew that these are people of per- principle that they adhere by. They saw it. They, they, saw, they saw it. They don't just preach, but they mm. practice what they preach. So, so that is our topic: is what drives radicalization. Effectively, what you've just said there—that is what will stop, in a way, radicalization. When you have the conflict, you need to have yeah. look for for us again. The, what was I was what I was saying before we mm. spoke to Steve? I had guidance. Mm. We had guidance. We knew exactly that 
if something happens in the world, and this is the same thing right now. We have guidance right now as we speak. His Holiness speaks on this issue every single Friday. Yeah. They, they, he's giving us that guidance that we need in order for us to keep ourselves sane, yeah. to, to keep ourselves on the right track. Because I tell you truly, this is a very worrisome time. Because again, if you don't have that guidance, if you are 16, 17, 18 years old and you are watching TikTok all day, Instagram, and you see these pictures, your blood will boil. I will tell you very honestly and truly, and I've seen it. And and that is what I mean. Extremism boils extremism. It exactly. leads to more extreme extremism. Extremism, and to the early point that you were making, I think it is also important to recognize uh, when we say a war, we, it's not as if uh, Israel is fighting in a, a trained army or an air no. force or an. That's why I said it's one-sided bombardment at the or moment. Yeah. It, it's yeah. It's you've got to understand the context. Yes, there was a barbaric act which was carried out on October the 7th, but you, you, you cannot give collective punishment to millions of people as a result of uh, a barbaric act committed by a few hundred people. So in saying that, it, this is what we're kind of alluding to or saying exactly is what would drive radicalization. I think the world that we live in, internationally yeah. speaking, whatever happens on the other side of the world, if you think that it is not going to have an impact on you, yeah. then 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 you live in, live yeah. in a different See, world. See, back in the day, you're right. So if there was a, a, a conflict somewhere in the Middle East or, say, in, far in another continent, that would never really impact on you here in this country or, or vice versa. But now, as we live in a global village, any conflict that's happening, I mean, if you look at the situation that's happening with what Putin is doing in Ukraine... It's affected us here massively. So everything is affecting us. It's We've become a global village. So those issues, and therefore our politicians around the world, need to understand that this is going to lead, as His Holiness is alluding to, very closely on the precipice of a third world war. And he's been saying it yes. the whole time. And the things that he says is justice. If you don't have justice, and I think... Uh, we're way beyond the point to discuss and to debate whether or this or that. I think for the world, it's very clear now. And you have a very limited people left who are still of that opinion that this is a justified uh, self-defense or whatever you want to call that. We're, we're way beyond that. 10,000, 15,000 lives on one side. What, what? It's not a comparison game, is it? It's 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 there's you're talking about lives. Yeah. So if, for example, we have the Home Secretary talking about these marches in this way, do you think that the people will not be upset? No, people from their own party are upset. So I'm so worried about her comments. And we were discussing this in, in the break earlier. The comments of calling um, hate marches um, and actually asking the uh, the police inspector, the yeah. um, to come in, uh, the PC who's in charge of all the, uh, the police to say, we think that you are policing um, not being fair in your policing mm. uh, just because um, you should be locking up these people who are marching on Palestine. What message is that sending? It's the wrong message. And I tell you, the first people that would agree to that statement would be people from the black community, yeah. right? Yeah. They'll say, well, yeah, sure, right. I mean, I, I get the police pick me up for, for no reason. <laughs> mm. But actually, she is playing a different game Mm. she is hoping and I God forbid if I'm wrong then then tell me I'm wrong I'm so scared 
that the fact that she has said what she said, she's inviting the right wing to arrive on Saturday yeah. Mm. To, yeah. to come in yeah, and, and actually to prove her right. Yeah. That is what's so scary. As a Home Secretary, yeah. your job is not to create or incite. It's to calm the country, to be in control. And say, look, I'm the Home Secretary. I'll protect you, feel safe. Not to incite differences between one another. Let's put this question to our next guest for this afternoon. So um, our next guest is Christian Cornett, who is Professor of Policing and Security at the University of South Wales. Assalamu alaikum. Peace be with you. A very warm welcome to the Drive Time Show. Oh, hi. How are you? Very well, Christian. Thank you very much for joining us. So let me put this question straight to you. Do you think um, these remarks by our Home Secretary are helpful? Um, I'm very sorry, but I don't really want to comment on the Home Office. Okay, that's fine. Um, What do you you believe uh, should be the next logical step in this this, situation? war that's going on in the Middle East and and the and the sw- and this swapping over to let's say Europe or here at home what do you think from from your um, uh, perspective as uh, as a professor mm. of policing and security what is it that that you think should be the next step yes no I think it's it's, it's a very difficult situation of course as you know there's a lot of people who have died and who are continuing to die in the war. And of course, that's something that we all hope that we need to work towards a peaceful solution in, in the long term, that's for sure. I think it's a, it's a long protected conflict that we're not going to be able to solve, obviously, over the next couple of weeks. But I think um, certainly one thing that's for sure is that we need to reduce uh, the the levels of of terrorism. We need to reduce um, the levels of innocent civilians being killed, and we need to be able to work towards a two-state solution in in the long run. I think that is obviously what uh, also the Oslo Agreement provides Mm. for, and I think that is something that we're all hoping we can achieve. I think in the current context of, of, of course, the war, it's very difficult to achieve that. But I think hopefully that will be the long-term, uh, long-term solution that we can work towards. Right. How important uh, is achieving a ceasefire at this present time? I mean, uh, I'm obviously not a military expert, so I can't really comment on the possibilities in terms of the, of the kind of military strategies there. But I think, in general, the important thing is obviously to keep civilian casualties at a very minimum. I think it's very important that civilians uh, find a possibility to, to flee the conflict, that they're able to mm, be protected, and that they're being and that they're being um, um, protected as well as possible. So I think that is generally something that we need to aim for. Um, but I'm not a military expert, so I can't really tell you too much about the, the military aspect of it. So, so what about this relationship between the Home Secretary and the police then, um, Christian? Maybe that's something you can elaborate upon, because that's something that people in the, in the media, on the street, in society are talking about because of what happened this morning. Is that something that sends a good message, a right message? Yeah, I, I don't really want to comment on the political aspect. Of, of 
whatever statements were made or okay. not made and yeah. so on. So that's really something that I can comment yeah. on. Um, so, so Christian, then, basically, I, I, you know, I can kind of understand where you're coming from on that. But actually, do you then, besides, I know you don't want to comment on it, but a military solution is not the answer. At some point, there has to be a political decision, right? People in power need to come round. They're the ones that ultimately will create the peace and negotiate. Not the, how it will be done, when it will be done, but ultimately it's the politicians that would actually come in eventually at some point and say, right, enough is enough. This is what we need to do politically. I mean, at least they're the ones that are going to finally stop this, right? Yes, of course. I think that's that's the kind of situation that we need to work towards. Yeah. That's the situation that we need to get towards, that there's an actual political negotiation at some point um, that will be able to, to, to get back towards a situation where we will talk about the kind of Oslo Agreement, that type of stuff. Yeah, could you just explain what the Oslo Agreement was in, in, in a couple of words before we let you go? Yes, just... Just in very, very brief and simple terms and uh, without too many nuances, the idea was to create two states. So there's obviously the state of Israel that already exists and then to create a state of Palestine in return for there not being any terror attacks, in return for there not being any kind of security risks yes. so that there would be coexisting peacefully side by side. That was the long-term solution. Obviously, Oslo was providing intermediate steps towards that end goal. And um, we unfortunately never got to the point where we are reaching the end goal. Yeah. But the idea was that ultimately, at the end of that process, you would have yeah. a two-state solution okay. where two states well, would exist peacefully side by side. Right. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Christian. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. Uh, you are a professor of policing and security at the University of South Wales. Thank you very much. Have a lovely Thank afternoon. You. Thank you. Right. Uh, yes. So, so let me put this question to to you guys. We are unfortunately um, at a situation, you know, this uh, conflict has been now going on for over a month. Thousands uh, of children have been killed. Um, a, a, a life lost is one life lost um, is a life too many, uh, irrespective of, of whose life that is, whether that was a Jewish life or, or a Muslim life. Um, how important do you think the need right now is of achieving ceasefire immediately? There's there's no doubt about that. I think if you have any ounce of humanity in you, if you have any ounce of emotional uh human feelings if you feel if you're a parent if you're a mother if you're a father if you're a human being you have no other option but to call for a ceasefire yeah i, I there's n- nothing that anybody can tell me at this point i think us working in 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 media and trying to portray things in the most just and fair possible way m- my whole week is spent in this and there is no angle that you can look at it that justifies that this just keeps going. There is no angle. There is no way. Unless there is someone who can who can prove me wrong, by all means, do call in. But I haven't come across one. So it's like, you know, uh, are, are the Western governments then playing it right when we talk about, for example, creating an environment of security here in, in, in Europe? 
uh, from a very selfish European point of view as well by not calling for a ceasefire? Are we are we um, um, are we doing service to um, our citizens by doing this? So these things will be definitely driven by a political decision, and politicians will be weighing weighing it up. And we know that seventy percent of the UK population, through the most recent polls, say they want a ceasefire. Mm. But our politicians who are not making this decision and asking for a pause, it tells you that which which lens are they looking at it from? Are they looking at it from the lens of what the population are asking? Or are they looking at it from a lens of what the historically, how they are beholden to America? Well, the interests are, are, are aligned to. Yeah. So, so this is where His Holiness talks about must make decisions on a just course. Yeah. And that is where people are seeing now unfold that it's not, it's not just. Mm. So come next general election, people will be voicing their opinion. Already we've had many people resign from various parties um, through various comments that were made. And the current politicians are just running from one crisis to another crisis, trying to deflect the crisis going on there now to talk about a peaceful march where as you've been to and mm. calling it a hate march let, let me spend maybe a couple of minutes gentlemen on this very important all important issue of justice or lack of justice so um uh, and, and let me sort of contextualize uh, the question i'm trying to ask so the question i'm trying to ask is in in the context of the ukraine russia war in which uh, yeah. Russia was the aggressor and uh, and Ukraine was a country which was being aggressed upon and uh, Russia was the occupier and rightly so there was uh, uh, was there was a huge um, outro, outpouring of uh, of um, support, support condemnation for, condemnation exactly for um, against Russia and for Ukraine here in this case we have a, we have an <laughs> occupier uh, who's been occupying a territory for the last uh, few decades. And then we have um, a population which is now being deprived of even food and water. Where is justice in that is my question. And let me sort of broaden that that question as well before you answer that, Imam Reza. And, and uh, um, my question would be around where is this taking the world towards? His Holiness has been warning us for the last couple of decades and we've seen these injustices year after year after year. Um, how quickly are we, 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 we are all, we're making the, run, the, the world run towards an abyss? So when we speak about extremism and what drives radicalization, on that note, mm. again, coming back to just just to let people know and especially people who are in a in in a position of power we're not in the 1990s anymore we're not even in 2000 anymore you're in 2023 where information is spread each second instantaneously so you have i'm sure you've seen that video as well i've seen that video as well where Ursula von der Leyen when she is quoting the exact same words that are being perpetrated by Israel against Palestine now, calling one side terrorism, but not calling out the other. But on the contrary, standing side by side with that side. 
what message are you sending to I'll come back to the same point to those who who deal with this the, to those who have have lost loved ones to those who have lost friends family members what message are you sending to in this case the muslim youth you know i i i've heard this so many times even before all of this came to the surface way before october 7th and when i was speaking to muslim youth outside the community they would always bring up the the issue of palestine and i think at that point in majority of the world there was no exposure we, we didn't know uh, so much about it in detail and they always referred to palestine and said you know once this issue when they solve that issue then we can talk i never understood it but i do now because they are bombarded with these pictures how can you expect someone who doesn't know the basics of their religion mm. who doesn't know how to reply yeah. and to respond and how to put everything into a context from the holy quran from the narrations from the sunnah from this from that and then come to a yeah. conclusion on how i need to behave as yeah. a muslim if what I can message are you sending if i can just add to 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 that question and uh and let me be very specific in this question and this question uh, is driven from what his holiness uh, hazrat mr masrur ahmed the current caliph of the amir muslim community said today in his friday's friday sermon and that was i think a warning to the political leaders of the world yeah. uh, who are not calling for a ceasefire and uh, and he pretty much said uh, in the words that there you know god gives an allowance but that allowance is not forever and that's exactly what we need to remember mm. whenever his holiness speaks at these symposiums or addresses mm. he always links it with the belief in god look the holy prophet peace and blessings of allah be upon him said that each one of us is a shepherd each one of us is responsible for the people that they have been put in charge of right so if uh, the the husband or the, the father is responsible for his family uh, someone who is an employer is responsible over his employees a mother is responsible for the house and all all that right. so and they will be questioned they will be asked about it right now this impunity that we're seeing not just in this case but with everything i mean there's conflict still happening in the around the world is because there is no concept of i will be held accountable in front of god one day we think that we tend to live in this world and this world alone whatever happens in the next life we'll see about that but if you have this awareness that there is a lot more severe punishment there's a lot more severe questioning that is going to happen in the hereafter mm. then maybe yeah. that humanity would come back but, but maybe. also maybe the question uh, uh, of uh, punishment here in this very life also which is which and is which is he said is, he said it in his yeah. sermon today like if yeah. not but well, you couldn't be you can be punished in this life yeah. but if not in this definitely and surely in the next i think we have brother kiyum on the line so let's let's go speak to oh, him how can we not have brother how kiyum on the line not? exactly brother kiyum assalam alaikum to you but you know brother kiyum the thing with brother kiyum is that on you. he is uh, um, he, i just want to bring you guys back to the topic <laughs> that we were supposed go to be ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead what was the topic which is, which is radicalization i mean right. uh, um look radicalization that suella bramerman talking about it's it's everyone's falling for exactly what she wants and discussing oh how wrong she is people need to know facts the national front who support the nazi party they go and have a march every year past the cenotaph 
they're allowed to do it every year. No one says a word. No one talks about hate speech. No one talks about, um, oh, there's going to be inciting violence. It happens every year. Have you ever heard about anyone talking about, oh, the National Front? People who actually are actually going in support of the people who were the oppressors. Hmm. No one talks about it. She, look, Sarah Braverman comes out with, politicians come out with rhetoric. There needs to be education. There needs to be facts that people must know. The last person who actually were managed to actually challenge the narrative of the Western mainstream media was that comedian from Egypt. He had facts. Hmm. He didn't just have emotions. Bassem Yusuf. Yeah, he, he had facts with him. And when he presented those facts in a cool, calm, um, he, he rationalized his emotions and he, he gave as good as he got. But he was listened to. And mm. we, can't, we can't fall for whatever Suala Braverman is saying because if you look at the facts, I mean, from a political point of view, do we really expect the, the British political parties to, to not take, take the side of, of Israel? And, and you know, we, we need to, we always talk about, oh, um, we need to condemn, and there was casualties on both sides. Yes, they were. But the Israeli casualties stopped time ago on that horrific attack that was done. It, you know, by Hamas on the 7th of October. But the Israel situation did not start on the 7th of October, started in 1948. Hamas came about in 1987, and they became armed in 1991 with funding from Israel. So what, whose fault was the occupation between 48 and 87? In West Bank, in the past, since 7th of October... Since 7th of October, 50 children have been killed in West Bank. There is no, there, there is no Hamas in West Bank. So he, the most important, the most important um, element that nobody talks about. I, I heard it on, on, on mainstream media today earlier that, oh, when Muslims say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, it hurts the sentiments of the Jewish community. But nobody ever says... The charter of the Likud party, the charter of the Likud party, which is in power, the charter yeah. says, the charter says from the sea to the Jordan, Israel will be sovereign. That's not, that's not just words. That's what they are doing. So, um, Kim, you talked about no, bringing it, the it's subject. Got to be, it's to... got to be believed. So when people, when, when people act on just emotion, of course, they're going to be radicalized. And when they see the, 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 in, in their country, in their homeland, this is homeland of the youth, when they see nowhere to go and when nobody gives them facts, people need to be given facts. And that is exactly, Brother Kim, you know, I agree with you. That's exactly what is happening right now. But the point is, if you don't have leadership, yeah. that's what I said before, if you don't have leadership like mm. I had when I was growing up, if you don't have anyone to point you into the right direction like we had when we grow up, then you will ultimately, unfortunately, unfortunately, out of 100 cases, there will be 
uh, a certain amount of, pay, of, of of people who will fall for that rhetoric, who will fall for that emotional, uh, one-sided approach that the world is giving them right now. But how do we counter that? And that's exactly what we were trying to say. Educate yourself. So th- that's that's exactly the thing. And, you know, we all know the facts. We know everything that's going on. Mm. We can see it. It's horrific unfolding. But then it's the next step. You know, how can we uh, actually exactly. prevent what do we do? the radicalization? And I think the point that we're making today is that we are very fortunate. We have leadership yeah. with us, with His Holiness, that is describing how we need to behave to resolve the situation and show true leadership and give comfort to the people who are in such an emotional state, whereas they will be so easily recruited to be radicalized, where we need to prevent that from happening yeah. so we can find Brother peace Neve. in the world. Brother Neve. Yeah. Brother Neve. Sorry to cut you off. I, I know, I know. I'm really sorry to cut you off there, but we're going to have to move on, Brother Kim. I will I will take that on board, but Zakala, for your contribution. Yeah. And, and next time you want to make further contributions, <laughs> make sure you actually turn up in the studios. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. No, right, he's allowed so. to do that. <laughs> no, look, yeah, the, 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 to finish this off, we're, yeah. we're coming to the close of, of the program. It's what the Promised Messiah, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community said. Nothing, and, and, and when I say nothing, I mean nothing. Nothing can be solved with, or, or nothing cannot be solved with the power of prayers. When I go through social media, if there's, 30 or 50 posts about oh this is what we should do oh this is boycott and boycott this and boycott mm. that again that's that's a different story but after 50 posts I will probably get one post that talks about prayer that talks about the emotional side we're Muslims voice of Islam means that every era every need every people will find a solution in, in, in the religion of Islam it doesn't matter which situation you're in so for those of you who are emotional, I, I understand completely where you're coming from. We're all going through the same thing. But don't get those, let those emotions take over. You have a religion and, you know, we have been blessed by having that guidance, by having, you know, that book that tells us about everything. We have the, the example of the Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. So if you think about it carefully, with that knowledge, with that information that you have, there is no room for radicalization. There's no room for extremism. Yeah. When the Holy Quran says there is no compulsion in religion, what are you going to do? What are you going? How are you going to justify your actions if you do it in the name of religion? And that can be any religion for that matter. The no, poll that right. we yeah. yeah yeah I mean I, I I wanted you to just take it to the end because I think you make a lot of sense. But I'll just give the results quickly to the poll that we were asking earlier. Rosa, uh, is that what drives people to becoming a radicalized? That we had four options there: loneliness and isolation, uh, lack of opportunities, marginalization, discrimination, and conflict of war. And actually, it was just under fifty percent. The conflict of war hmm. was the highest. Uh, choice that people made and the marginalization and discrimination again was not that far off the other two were way at the bottom uh, loneliness was five percent and lack of opportunity was seven so marginalization was 39 percent and conflict of war was 49 percent and actually i think it's feeding into the emotions of yeah. people they're feeling it they're seeing it and somehow some leadership needs to be found yeah. somewhere and i think you know i'll just and I'll let you take it to the end, uh, Reza, because I think 
this concept of God is so important here. That is basically what what is lacking big time. Uh, His Holiness has been for the last four weeks, correct me if I'm wrong, has been speaking about prayer and specifically for the members of the Amdi Absolute community to have a dedicated prostration to sp- to to pray for the people of Palestine in in each and every single of their prayers. It's not once a week, it's not twice a week in every prayer. And if you want to let your emotions out, your anger, whatever it is that you're feeling, then go in front of that creator who created us. Go in front of that being who has the power to change everything overnight, within an instant, within uh, a few seconds. And let let him know how you feel. And don't be a keyboard warrior. Use the means and use the 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 the, the means disposable to us in the right, correct way. At this point, we would like to say thank you to Manahal Nasser, Kafi Ahmed, and Sitwat Mirza, and to you as well. Assalamu alaikum.